Hello and welcome to this week's Innovation Enterprise podcast. My name is George Hill and I'm Editor-in-Chief at the company and I will be your host today. This week we will hear Christopher Steger's presentation from the Big Data Innovation Summit in Boston from 2016. Christopher is the Director of Product Innovation and Personalization Algorithms at Netflix. Chris described the content of his presentation as, Machine learning is a field subject to trends and fads like any other. However, there is a core set of well-established models that offer simple and effective solutions to many of the big data problems that businesses are trying to solve. They may not be blessed with the mystique of deep learning, but for many practical applications, the simplest answer are indeed the best. For those who are able to resist the temptation to reinvent the wheel, successful machine learning becomes a matter of execution and adherence to principles, insightful features, engineering, solid metrics and regular retraining. So before I hand over to Christopher, I just wanted to let you know that the Big Data Innovation Summit returns to Boston this year on September the 7th and 8th. So without further ado, here is Christopher's presentation. Um, Just to sort of set the stage for this talk, um, I'm going to use some technical language, but really the intended audience is stakeholders and people who are trying to figure out where, um, where big data, where machine learning fit into their organization and how to be successful in that front. So I actually got my start um, here in this neighborhood. I worked at a company called Skyhook Wireless um, and I arrived at Netflix a couple of years ago and I was struck by um, a, number, a number of aspects uh, of the way Netflix does machine learning and I wanted to share some of that, uh, some of that wisdom with you. Uh, it occurs to me that I don't know how to move to the next slide. The green button? All right. Thank you. Oh, or voice control. Um, okay. So in order to understand uh, what we do at Netflix today, I'd like to uh, start out with some history. So this was, um, uh, this was how I learned about big data at Netflix uh, before I was ever there. So. Um, let's look back at 2006. So Netflix was founded in about 1997. Um, company had been around about 10 years, but 2006 was a really important uh, inflection point for the company. There were about 6 million sub- subscribers in the U.S., uh, and cumulatively the company had shipped about a billion DVDs. So, you know, those, those numbers are getting significant. And um, very importantly, those users had submitted about 1.7 billion star ratings. And if you think back to the, the DVD days, um, star ratings were essential for helping people to decide what they were going to watch next. So when you wanted DVDs shipped to you, you uh, queued up a list, and then we moved serial, serially through that list and uh, gave you your next DVD. So when you were deciding what to watch, you would look at the star ratings and say, OK, Netflix thinks this will be good for me. I'll put it next up in my queue. So. Um, from the beginning, personalization was a key feature at Netflix. Those personalized star ratings were a really big deal, a really, point of, really big point of emphasis for the company. So um, users found them very valuable. Uh, they, they were a key part of the product. Um, everyone from the top to the bottom of the organization was very focused on getting better star ratings. And what they decided to do about it was uh, the Netflix prize. So this started in 2006. And it was, uh, at least in the recommendation and machine learning space, it was like the Manhattan Project. Uh, there was huge fanfare about this. I was back in grad school, but I uh, 
I heard about it. It was a very big deal. Everyone wanted to work on the Netflix prize. And the basic idea is that there was a, a large set of training data. So the star ratings of, um, let's see, uh, half a million members, 100 million ratings uh, of 17,000 movies. So a big data set, and it was challenging for the systems of the time to, uh, to chew through that. There, um, there were no techniques to, to um, cleanly employ things like uh, singular value decomposition on a, a matrix of that size. So it was a very big deal. Um, people got very excited about it. There were a total of about 50,000 uh, different competitors who went to work on this project. And the goal uh, was to improve the star ratings by just 10%. And um, it seemed fairly straightforward at first, but it ended up taking about three years for someone to accomplish that goal of just moving the, the star ratings 10% better. So in 2009, three years later, the million dollar prize was awarded. And the, the winning team actually was multiple teams that sort of um, stuck together over time and combined their techniques. So uh, the, the really big innovation that uh, moved the state of the art was called SVD++. Um, it's uh, a matrix factorization technique. And you know, that, that was a really big deal. But the other thing that they did is that they combined a lot of different techniques from different teams together, diverse ideas, um, using things like uh, what time of day uh, people submitted their ratings or whether they submitted them in a big cluster or one at a time, and applied different meanings to them that way. So the takeaway here is that there was a very complex heavyweight solution that ended up uh, winning at the end of the day. But they got the million dollars. OK, so based on that history, um, you would assume that things at Netflix today are very, um, very complex, very difficult to understand, very heavyweight. Um, and that's not entirely wrong, but maybe not for the reasons you think. Uh, so looking back at 2006, we had about 6.3 million members. Today, we have about 83 million. And those 6.3 million were all from one country. And as of January 6th of this year, uh, Netflix covers substantially all countries, 193 of them. So we went from 60 to 193 in one day um, after significant effort. But uh, that's what happened when we flipped the switch. And over that time, we also switched from shipping DVDs to being primarily a streaming service. So every day, people stream about 125 million hours of Netflix content. And at last count, that made up about 35% of the downstream uh, internet traffic in the US. So we've gone from big data to unimaginably big data. And personalization has changed as well. So instead of just trying to estimate star ratings, personalization has permeated every aspect of the system. So we have uh, rankings of the videos for each user, just a sort of a linear ranking, which is what I primarily work on. And uh, we also have page construction, messaging, image selection. So we have vastly more algorithms than we did before. And because we're now a streaming service, because people interact online, uh, we have much more observable data. So in a DVD system, we know what you queued up. Uh, we know how you know whether you rated it, but we don't even know whether you watched it. But in a streaming system, uh, we know every single click 
that a user makes, whether they watched a movie for five minutes, whether they watched it to completion, whether they abandoned it, uh, whether they seem to be confused by the box art, how far they scrolled down the page, uh, whether they read the synopsis or not. So there's vastly more data from a vastly larger set of users fueling a much larger set of algorithms. So uh, where does Occam's razor come in? So when we uh, develop and refine algorithms at Netflix, uh, we're driven by A-B test results. So um, basically everything we do is focused on uh, driving a project toward an A-B test, interpreting that test, and then productizing successful results. That's our uh, sort of unit of innovation. And in the course of these A-B tests, we found that a large majority of our algorithmic successes are driven by two fairly simple families of algorithms. So um, more often than not, the answer comes from either logistic regression or random forests. And I'll talk about them a little bit more. Um, and keep in mind that um, I'm thinking from the perspective of a stakeholder or a product owner here. And the kind of questions that you want to ask your team when they're looking for a solution to your big data problem. Um, I think some of the very good questions to ask are, well, can you do it with logistic regression? Can you do it with random forests? And aside from the tools, there are some very important best practices that I've observed. So uh, one of the very important things is making sure that your uh, metrics for which your algorithms are being optimized align with your business objectives. Um, sounds simple, but in practice, it's often not. Um, exhaustive data analysis. and uh, these uh, three data engineering practices that I've sort of tortured into being the three R's, uh, retraining, retuning, and regularization. Okay, so first, um, a quick note about logistic regression. Um, it's very old, about 60 years old now. Um, very simple, so you could implement it in a few lines of code, but you don't have to because there are tons of open source uh, versions, very efficient, and more often than not, um, if you have a, a scoring or a ranking problem, logistic regression is a very good solution. So as a stakeholder, a good question to ask is, well, why are you spending time on reinventing the wheel when logistic regression might be the right answer? Uh, one of the other nice things about it is that it's very understandable and interpretable. So uh, we've seen a couple of talks earlier today where people talked about interpreting coefficients to help them understand their problems better. Well, LR has the advantage of a very interpretable co coefficients. So not only can you draw insights from your results, but you can also debug them and see when something is going wrong. Uh, something we often don't design for, but we're very grateful when we have that uh, improved debugging ability. Okay, so the, the next algorithm uh, up, sort of one more level of complexity, but really the next question you should ask is, okay, if LR is not going to do it for us because our problem is just too complex, can we do it with random forests or a, a similar technique? So um, these are not quite as old as LR, but um, they're already 20. Uh, and the idea here is that we take a, a very simple idea, the decision tree. We could all draw a, a decision tree for how we get through our day. And a decision tree by itself is fairly weak, but a large ensemble of these so-called weak learners actually turns out to be a very, powerful, uh, a very powerful tool. So you could have hundreds or thousands of these decision trees. And um, each one of them is, is fairly trivial. And they can uh, be parallelized to extreme degrees. And they can provide performance that competes with much fancier 
algorithms. So that's the second question to ask. If you can't use LR, um, can you use random forests or a related technique? Okay, so moving on from our tools, um, let's talk about metrics alignment. So as a product manager, um, I spend a lot of my time sort of thrashing over metrics. I talked about how important stars were in the early days of Netflix. So a lot of, a lot of the systems were optimized toward getting people to rate more and feeding back um, more accurate predicted star ratings. But what happened as we moved from DVDs to streaming is that that um, sort of diverged from our business objectives. Uh, there's something that our chief product officer, Neil Hunt, calls the Hotel Rwanda problem, where um, there are admirable movies, movies that you think are important, movies that you think are good, that you would never dare give anything less than five stars. But on a regular basis, that's probably not what you want to see. So if we're optimizing for what people actually want to see, we have to um, look at what they do rather than what they say. So star ratings are actually um, a much less accurate predictor of what you're going to watch next. Uh, we find that a lot of people just want to watch Family Guy but they might hesitate to rate Family Guy five stars because they don't find it sufficiently admirable. Um, so people get a bunch of uh, admirable documentaries, give them five stars, put them in their queue, and then never watch them, and then they go watch Family Guy instead. So we have a lot of discussions. We spend a lot of time on what our metrics should be. So Netflix is a subscription service. We say, okay, from month to month, we want people to keep renewing their subscription. Um, that's a hard thing, to, hard thing to move, hard thing to measure. Our next best proxy metric is how much do you watch? So if you're doing a lot of streaming, then you're unlikely to cancel. So uh, we do a lot of our optimi optimization for that, and we sort of step back our metrics um, toward increased sensitivity, but um, less direct connections to our business metrics. But we're constantly doing analysis to make sure those connections are there, make sure the streaming retention link holds on. So like I said, this seems very simple, but in practice, it takes a lot of work, a lot of careful thought, and sometimes your business objectives and their relationship to your optimization metrics can change over time. All right, exhaustive analysis. So um, another thing, it seems like uh, a platitude to say, uh, you know, you should, you should know your data, but um, we, we spend a lot of time doing it. And rather than building fancy models, this is where we see a lot of the gains. So looking at our users, seeing if there are subsets of users who um, have worse performance, for instance. Um, I've failed to call out my colleague, Sudeep, here, who does a lot of this hard work um, on, on my team. Uh, Sudeep, can you wave? So if you, have, if you have questions about how this actually works, he's a, a good resource. Um, and Sudeep has actually done a lot of work on um, looking through our user populations and saying, okay, um, are newer users disadvantaged? Are users from certain countries disadvantaged? What are some ways that we can tease out dimensions that we haven't even thought of for who might be getting better or worse service from us that would allow us to tune up our op optimization objectives, add some features to the model? So really pouring over the data, not being too biased by our previous assumptions, and constantly questioning the way things worked before, questioning our conventional wisdom about um, who's being served and how well. So, that's where we find the places to get wins, by um, really continuously pouring over our data and making sure we understand how our users are doing. Okay, now on the data engineering side, back to those three R's. Um, once again, it's something that we all know we should be doing, but uh, we probably don't all do. I know I've left a, 
a trail of uh, stale models in my wake over the years. So you train it once, it works pretty well, um, and then you move on to the next problem. But really, lots of times, what you're seeing is a slow degradation of performance as the underlying system drifts away from what it was um, when you first trained your model. So it's very important to design in continuous retraining so you can keep up with those, uh, keep up with the drift, keep up with uh, new phenomena that pop up in your data. In Netflix's case, um, it could be the launch of a new original show um, that highlights the value of a certain feature. It could be a holiday, it could be a, the Olympics, it could be a political campaign. All those things mean that we have to constantly retrain our models. And going along with that is the, the retuning, so making sure that our parameter choices are still right. So keeping that in the loop, um, constantly questioning our parameters and making sure that we have the right model tuning for the way our system is today. And finally, regularization. So this can be really embarrassing in the uh, movie recommendation space um, when you recommend something completely nonsensical. Um, I, I appreciate you guys not throwing anything if you've had uh, a bad recommendation or two. But I found that one of the common culprits for, uh, for problems in recommendations is overfitting. So that means the model has uh, drawn conclusions that are too strong based on a, a relatively small amount of data. And so we have to be very vigilant about that. And you know, we have a tremendous team of data scientists, but we have to keep telling ourselves, OK, are we sufficiently regularizing? Um, is this model overfitting on our data? Uh, so this, this is the sort of consideration that everybody has to have, and it's going to trip you up. It's going to undermine any of the um, sort of more, more glamorous efforts that you have if you don't take care of good retraining, retuning, and regularization. Okay, so the takeaways. Um, as a stakeholder, as a product owner, you say, okay, team, you've come to me and told me that we need a massive deep learning solution to this problem. Are you sure that we can't use LR? Are you sure that we can't use random forests? And um, as we're proposing this solution, um, have we built it so that it can be retrained, retuned, and regular regularized? Is it aligned with our business objectives? And have we done our due diligence on making sure that um, all of our use cases are being served, that we're not discovering uh, new weaknesses in our system? So thank you very much, and please keep streaming. Any questions? <coughs> it's not muted. At least a little bit. Any of you who still have DVDs at home, I will offer amnesty. I'll just collect them. No questions asked. So what is your biggest challenge? Wow, you didn't say these would be <laughs> philosophic, philosophical hard questions. Um, you know, I think it is the, uh, the diligently going through the data and um, making sure that we're understanding all of the possible places where we might be going wrong, basically not over-biasing on our prior assumptions of the mechanisms where our system should be breaking. So, you know, we think a lot about user tenure. Um, new users versus uh, users who are more mature in the system. Um, but we, we need to be very open-minded to learn things like are people having trouble um, finding the controls for subtitles 
is that why they are, they're abandoning some shows. So um, being, being very open-minded and being very diligent and being very thorough in that sort of unglamorous work of sifting through the data in every possible dimension to see where the weaknesses might be and see what we can improve, where we can get metrics wins that way. So it's not glamorous, um, but that's really what we need to do to deliver the best product. Any other questions? Yes. Thank you. Great presentation. So you mentioned like uh, you, you guys are generating 35% of internet traffic. I believe YouTube is generating 20%. So you and YouTube are basically generating half of the internet traffic in US. 10, 15 years ago, we never thought like network traffic would ever cause a problem. But even in the corporation, uh, I work with Fannie Mae, we have seen even the like uh, financial organization, network traffic is causing problem between the organization. We never thought those pipes will ever congest. So what is the like uh, like steps you guys are taking towards solving the network traffic problem? So um, at a high level, uh, one of the strategies that Netflix has is to uh, distribute the content out as close as possible to the, um, to the end users. So uh, we have a bunch of uh, data center appliances that um, we put out all over the world um, to try to minimize the traffic on the, the backbone. So that's, that's one big step. And uh, we've also made some improvements recently in our encoding to take up less bandwidth. So even though people are streaming more, we're actually using slightly less bandwidth than we were this time last year. We have one question here. So you spent a few decades understanding how Americans behave and how decisions they make would influence um, what movies they'd be interested in. Mm -hmm. How different was it when you went international? Because every country, every country in the world, all sorts of different populations and cultures. Did the data itself look significantly different? Well, I should say that um, going global is a process of continuous learning. Um, I think we we're discovering new things about our user populations every day, and even within the U.S., uh, as we go deeper into the um, deeper into the population, we get um, out past the early adopters, past the kind of medium adopters, and we see uh, different behaviors. So, um, I guess thinking about that U.S. example. Uh, we see more people being interested in, I guess, having, having an option for background. Um, so Netflix is seen as sort of a, a lean forward entertainment option for the most part, where you have to, you have to watch carefully and you have to think about it. Um, but we find that um, outside of the early adopter population, um, people are also interested in something where they can um, kind of relax and let it come to them. So I think that's an interesting learning. Um, on the international front, we are learning a lot about um, whether our early adopter population is really comfortable with English. Um, we, we sort of uh, started under the assumption that we would be dealing with a lot of English speakers. Um, and in some countries, that's much more true than others. Uh, and we see that sort of thing in our search data, like um, in Poland, whether people are looking for Polish content. So uh, we try to respond to that both by localizing the content which is not really algorithmic. It's just um, doing the grunt work of uh, doing subbing and dubbing and uh, licensing local content. Um, but we also say, OK, well, if people are looking for Polish content, then maybe we need to make it more obvious 
which content has Polish subtitles and which doesn't, um, and make sure that people who might be interested in Polish content are uh, having that content bubbled up in their recommendations. So the, the importance of language, the importance of uh, local content um, is something that we're, we're still feeling out, and like I said, it's different from country to country. Some countries uh, might be more interested in seeing US content, some countries might be more interested in seeing local content. Thank you, Chris. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening, and remember that if you like what you've heard, like and subscribe to the podcast, and tune in next week where we will have another presentation from a previous summit. Welcome to another radio.